in many, many countries, many institutions, uh, diabetic foot care is still fragmented and lots of people just don't want to deal with it. And to me, that's a big opportunity because it's a huge problem. And so usually when you actually try to form a team, there's not that much resistance because nobody else really wants to do it. This episode was made possible with the support of Medtronic Aortic. Aortic disease doesn't stop. Neither do you. That's why now, more than ever, we're committed to offering virtual education, off-the-shelf solutions, and unrivaled support. Medtronic Aortic, your partner in the evolving healthcare landscape. Navigating change together. You're listening to the Vascular Podcast from Radcliffe Vascular. Today's host is Professor Ramesh Tripathi. With me today are um, two great uh, proponents of uh, diabetic foot, and not just proponents, but also uh, people who have contributed majorly to uh, diabetic foot care uh, all across the world. I have uh, Professor Joe Mills, who is uh, John and Josephine Reed Endowed Professor in Surgery and Chief of Vascular Surgery and Endovascular Therapy at Michael E. DeBakey Department of Surgery, Baylor College of Medicine, Houston. He is also the Medical Director of Diabetic Foot and Wound Care Center at Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center. And with him is David Armstrong, who is Professor of Surgery and Director of the Southwestern Academic Limb Salvage Alliance, SALSA. He's at the Keck School of Medicine, University of South California, and he is the founder of DEFCON, American Limb Preservation Society, and both these uh, guests of mine have uh, won laurels all across uh, the world, uh, too numerous to count at the moment. So welcome, uh, David and Joe. It's a pleasure to have you on my podcast. Oh, Ramesh, it's a bit, uh, I think the pleasure, I think I speak, let me, let me just take this opportunity to actually speak for Joe, uh, but uh, by saying it is our pleasure. This is really great to be here. No, I, I know you both as friends, and it's nice to be together uh, virtually to talk about something important. Fantastic. So I, I understand that your collaboration goes back to your University of Tucson uh, days, where you founded the, um, um, the SALSA, which was the South Arizona Alliance, and, uh, and you became Tomigos and Flowamigos. <laughs> it's well done, man. Uh, they, hey, and what you guys can't see, actually, uh, who are listening at home, if you subscribe to the podcast, is that uh, Joe Mills is recording this uh, using uh, Zencast, and his uh, handle here is Joe Mills Flojo. Not like Florence Griffith Joyner, but Flojo, like vascular surgeon Joe Mills or Joe the Plumber. Uh, Joe, you want to tell the story? Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting. So David was actually at our VA hospital in Tucson and linked with the University of Arizona. And I had met him as he was moving to be, I believe, an associate dean at the Shoal School of Medicine in um, Chicago. Chicago. 
And so right. we, I didn't find out that we had such. Yeah, I don't want. I don't want to interrupt Joe, but, but your, but your you memory will. is perfect. Yeah, your your memory is perfect so far. So please keep going. Yeah. So I I didn't realize how much our interests overlap. So after a short period of time, um, I started looking for other opportunities, and I actually was looking at coming to Chicago to be at a different school, but I was interested in looking at building a. Uh, combined podiatry vascular surgery effort with endocrinology to look at diabetic foot ulcer. And Chicago is an interesting city. It has a diverse population with many ethnicities. And I thought it would be interesting to be able to study um, access to care from different populations and different ethnicities. And I interviewed up there several times and, and finally decided not to come. And then not too long thereafter, David called me and said, what if I come back to Tucson? So I went to my department chairman and said, well, we want to build on this limb salvage service that we already have, but I've, we can get into that later. But I really think we need to have foot doctors, not just blood flow doctors. And he said, sure. And then no one kind of knew what to do with podiatrists. So David ended up being part of our division. So that's how we, and then over a phone call, I believe we came up with SALSA. We were trying to come up with an acronym, which that's became, true. became that's true. Southern Arizona Limb Salvage Alliance, which fits in well with the Southwest. And we spent, um, what, nearly a decade, more than a decade. Just about, yeah, yeah, give, yeah, give or take, maybe take a little more than give. Yeah, well, I guess it's closer, closer to eight years. But anyway, and we, it's not as complicated as it sounds. We basically got some extra space that urology evacuated, and we had the vascular lab in one hallway, or in, the, in between the vascular clinic in one hallway and the podiatry clinic in the other hallway. And we would just cross back and forth and meet patients and work together. And same thing with consults. We'd see them together. And we kind of, after working together for a while, started to change how we thought about the problem and how we thought it should be treated. But it was mostly by working together. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's, um, you know, people talk about team science, team medicine, um, and it, it's, um it's easy to talk about and, and it's actually hard to do, you know, it's really hard to stick two different kind of surgical specialists on one team um, in, in real time, not only on an inpatient service, but on an outpatient service. And we literally started in just the one uh, in the one hallway and Joe and I, <laughs> we would even share, this is back in the latter days of, um, of, of paper notes. Uh, believe it or not, but we started, uh, we even shared a little like pull down table in the middle of the hallway. And we shared, I think, four or five rooms together. And we would be just doing curbside consultations with one another. And we had a little kind of Mason Dixon line or Maginot line with a little tape down the middle where I would uh, uh, write my notes on one side. And then he would always kind of come over to my side, like eminent domain, trying to steal territory. It was really. It was the magic toe line. The magic it was toe the, line. Well, oh, yeah, I would say well done for you because it's part of your court-ordered therapy to come up with good quality puns every now and then. And that was, I would say, on the salsa scale of zero to good, that was probably at a two or three is good. I mean, it was well done for a first shot, Joe. Yeah, so there was a magic toe line. No, but it was fun. We had a good time. And we actually, um, we there was some resistance at first. The chief of orthopedics was one of my best friends, actually. And, and he called me guy. up one day. And he's a great guy. And he called me up one day and said, "Why are you hiring this damn podiatrist?" And I said, "Well, <laughs> he's he's, he, he's really interested in ex, has expertise in diabetic foot care, and we want to expand our offerings for patients with diabetic foot ulcers. He's not going to do trauma, and he doesn't want to do 
ankle reconstructions on athletes. He's, but he says, oh, okay, that's no problem. And it just points out that in, I know in many, many countries, many institutions, uh, diabetic foot care is still fragmented and lots of people just don't want to deal with it. And to me, that's a big opportunity because it's a huge problem. And so usually when you actually try to form a team, there's not that much resistance because nobody else really wants to do it. Sure. And you guys working together showed that it made difference to the outcomes of diabetic foot patients. Yeah, that's uh, so uh, we, I guess maybe four years uh, actually, I think maybe two or it was, I think it was four years into it. Uh, uh, one of the initial things uh, that we did was try to kind of measure what we were managing. Um, and uh, what we saw was that um, th that when we put these teams together, we put this team together, we saw a pretty dramatic change in the type of surgery that was done. And we had a movement away from kind of reactive and ablative surgery being most prominent and, and predominant toward more proactive and reconstructive surgery um, on the non-vascular side of things. So for instance, maybe more tendon transfers, osteotomies, skin grafts, and reconstructions versus amputations, um, urgent amputations, just as a, uh, as a percentage. Um, we also had a dramatic change in the high to low amputation ratio at a center that was already doing really good work uh, in, uh, in, in, in the diabetic foot before this got started with Joe because he had a significant interest in the area. So that was one thing that we saw um, for sure. In addition to that, Joe might want to talk about the fact that there was a, I, I know that, um, that, that John, our other partner, John Hughes, was initially worried that it would reduce the number of procedures that he was going to be doing. I, don't you, isn't that what happened uh, um, at first? We actually changed it. Yeah, because we, our payment system is RVU driven, which is based on procedures. So RVUs stand for relative value units. And we, we built up a, a really successful limb salvage um, group that I was proud of, and we did a good job. But what I didn't realize until I started uh, trying to expand was that you were only seeing patients that someone recognized there might be a blood flow problem. And there's a lot of other patients out there with diabetic foot ulcers and um, in whom the, the problem's not even completely recognized. It's just attributed to, oh, it's just diabetes or it's just neuropathy or whatever. They never get a vascular evaluation. So I think if I remember the statistics correctly, oh yeah, uh, over that second four-year period, so we compared before salsa to after, the um, we ended up seeing close to a thousand patients a month in the salsa clinic between podiatry and vascular surgery, and our two thirds of the patients required some revascularization during that time period. Not always in the initial um, diagnosis and management stage, but at some point during that course. And then, well, actually, no, I'm sorry, it's about forty percent. But two thirds were endo first, which was pretty much in line with with the rest of the world. But our actual vascular volume went up by about seventy percent. Um, and and yeah, and the reason was that a lot of patients would get sent with a foot problem to podiatrists, and we developed an algorithm where their flow status also got assessed, and we worked on them together. And so it was. And we the other thing we did, which I thought was really good, and we've replicated that in to somewhat extent in Houston. I know David's doing that in Los Angeles, but when you get advanced vascular trainees working together with uh, limb salvage and podiatry trainees, they teach each other. 
uh, and they learn to work together and try to co-manage patients and talk about timing of debridements and how good is that revascularization and what should we do next? And it really cross fertilizes the two training groups. So I think that that may be the biggest gift we give because that gets transmitted to the next generation. So hopefully we can encourage people to keep doing that. That's uh, that is that is for sure. And yeah, there was there was even a reduction when we measured that um, the kind of the impact of kind of the toe and flow, if you will, um, uh, on uh, on all this. What we found was that. Uh, yeah, we even had a reduction in in vascular surgery staffing uh, during that period of time, and even with that, there was a dramatic increase in lower extremity reconstructions. Endo, as you heard, endo and open about seventy thirty. Yeah, open went up even more. It was surprising because when you get a bigger popu- population of patients, you get complex stuff that needs more than just endo sometimes too. So it was good for it was good for patients, but it also augmented the practice. And did you find that? Uh patients who had vascular compromise, if they had podiatry services earlier, it prevented further, you know, major complications with the foot, even after revascularization. The bottom line is that, um, well, when podiatry, I think the data now are, are, are pretty good that podiatry extends or kind of prolongs the life of the lower extremity, if you will. Um, and you know, what we see now is if someone has seen a podiatrist along with another member of the diabetes team, and it almost doesn't have, to, it doesn't matter who that is, it could be a, a nurse practitioner, it could be an endocrinologist, it could be a GP, there is, uh, in, in one year, there is a six-year re- relative reduction um, in amputation anywhere from just under 20% to just about two-thirds, depending on what problem they have when they present, which is extraordinary. I mean, these numbers are extraordinary. The low end would be extraordinary. Um, and and there now there's and that was that first study was uh, by friends of colleagues of ours at Duke. Um, and, yeah, the Dukies. Yeah, but that that but subsequent ones have kind of said the exact same thing. And these have all been in one direction um, uh, on that end. And uh, and then of course you know we know that that uh, that, that taking care of uh, the blood flow into the foot uh, improves the life of the leg as well uh, and may even in, uh, reduce morbidity and mortality. So putting them both together is really, really terrific. But Joe, why don't you speak to the primacy of, uh, of uh, uh, podiatry's uh, pivotal place in prevention? No, there's no, well, there's no question. So before we worked with podiatry, we we didn't do anything. We didn't identify high-risk patients by uh, testing for neuropathy, um, unless they had a foot ulcer or if they had foot pain and only had neuropathy and had normal vascular testing, we didn't have much to offer those patients. And we didn't screen them by the risk criteria that the um, ADA or the APMA recommends. So basically, we were like our fingers in the dike with the with the water coming in. So we only saw patients that got admitted to the emergency room with severe diabetic foot um, wounds or infections or the people that got recognized in the community that might be ischemic and gut sent. So we were, we were just putting out fires and we still are doing that to some extent, but, um, podiatry, as far as longitudinal management does, I mean, I think you need two things. We did really well with following the patients that have been revascularized. And initially actually I started out, I wasn't quite sure that David would have enough to do. So I had these patients saved up that um, I remember one in particular had a femperineal bypass that was probably eight or nine years out, was still widely patent, but he had a short transmet that I had the skin graft because he had infection. 
and his foot was in Aquinas. And when he walked, he kept getting a lateral foot ulcer. And I'd, ne I'd never done a Achilles tendon wrenching procedure. And I'd never done a, a tendon transfer. And so I had a handful of patients like that. And David started taking care of him. And pretty soon, actually, they started getting a lot of other referrals for foot problems. So there's no question that that putting podiatry together with vascular surgery, most of what we do is totally complementary. So when we started out, we would still, before we had podiatry, we did all the toe amputations, all the INDs of feet. We'd take bad plantar fasciitis and treat it. But again, we're just treating the tip of the iceberg. Um, and we still would do some of those urgent procedures before we recruited enough podiatrists. But increasingly, as your practice builds, you're busy enough doing the revascularization part. And it's really helpful to have people around that can help manage the wound, look at alternatives to closure, look at things like um, uh, pan med head resection, which is an operation I'd never done before. There's actually a role for that. We've never done prophylactic surgery in people with foot deformities to prevent recurrent ulceration. So there's a huge role for podiatry, and most of it is is extremely complementary with what we offer. So before we had that, we didn't offer any of that. So we kind of struggled with these patients. Um, uh, and then, then we didn't have a high-risk monitoring clinic. So when you get a number of podiatrists with trainees, they can actually see these high-risk patients and monitor their foot temperature or mon monitor their activity levels or put them in a gate lab and see where they're building up problems with their feet. And I think there's no doubt they can prevent some problems rather than just waiting for them to happen. Yeah, it, it really, you know, um, we kind of have a, a saying that, that, that hard things are, are hard. And, and um, but just because they're hard doesn't mean they're not fun. And in fact, quite the opposite. And um, it's just uh, putting this together and putting the, the, you know, when you put the team together and you put the effort into that, it's just, you get so much more out of it than you than you put in it's like a, a, a it's it it really is it's extraordinary and you know um i think i'm the luckiest toe doctor on the planet uh getting to work uh you know with all these world-class uh vascular surgeons uh of course uh joe being uh flomigo prime there uh the 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 the, the kind of seminal one with with whom I've had the pleasure of working, but you know, since that time now, it's just almost become. Even though it's hard, it's become natural, not unnatural. And so, what's so awesome? Joe sent me a text the other day because yet another group um, of folks that we had trained or had kind of set up uh, what we call toe and flow shops together at another uh, you know institution. Did, didn't you? Did, did, wasn't that just a couple well, weeks ago, Joe? Yeah, so I had forgotten about that fellow. Actually, that was about seven years ago. But I, I know as a direct result of some of the efforts David and I have made that they have podiatry now integrated with Vascular at University of California, San Francisco with Mike Conti. One of our former trainees at University of Washington went to a place that was a was run run by orthopedics, basically, and they they were experts on major limb amputations and changed the whole culture around. So he and Nitin Singh worked together in Ben Starn's group. So they're a toe and flow group. University of University of Alabama, Birmingham has that. Uh, Larry Lavery's in Southwestern and works both with vascular surgery and plastic surgery. What about Eric Liu in Chile? Yeah, Eric, Eric Liu and John Merrick in University of New Mexico. So it's, we get lots of phone calls and you need to find, so not every vascular surgeon's passionate about limb, limb salvage. I mean, all of us usually go into the field because we like operating everywhere. Um, we like doing aortic work and carotid work, um, but 
if you look objectively at the population demographics and changes, there's way more PAD and CLTI out there than there are complex aneurysms or carotids that need fixing. So you need to have people in your group that are devoted to the limb. The same with podiatrists. Some podiatrists would prefer to do wealthy patients with foot deformities or do athletes. So you need to have both both the toe and the flow components need to really be um, devoted to diabetic foot care. But if you do that, they can figure the rest out. And, and the solutions are pretty similar. It basically amounts to putting them either in the same division or at least in the same clinic. And you talk to each other a lot. That's, that's, that's the basic... Uh, basic solution, basic recipe. So Joe and uh, David, if for our listeners, if somebody were to put a diabetic foot care unit together, what would you uh, recommend will be the components of it and who all should be involved? Yeah. Okay. Well, I know that yeah. two part is there and flow part is there. What are the other areas that one has to do? Well, I, you know, this was one of the first things that we um, well, when we got together, that we were really talking about and thinking about a lot because we were asking was, well, you know, because, you know, Joe, uh, you know, I guess pre-pandemic, pre-apocalyptic, you know, we would travel around the world quite a bit and see a lot of units that uh, uh, had different uh, different components uh, there. But what we asked was, were, what is the what, what is the atomic minimum? that you need to set something up. And you can be kind of agnostic to surgical or medical or sort of nursing specialty if you know the kind of key things um, that you need to do in managing uh, the foot. And, and, uh, and that could be when you're in a hospital and then when you're in an outpatient setting. We've actually written a lot of these things down. There's actually only seven or eight things that you really need to do. And if you check all, all seven of those off the list, really, or, or eight, then you can have you know, as few as two, um, you know, clinicians, uh, that's like kind of where the toe and flow are kind of at the center. And you can have more than that, but it almost doesn't matter who is the team captain. It could be um, an interested physician, surgeon, nurse, uh, therapist, physical therapist, uh, or to translate Ramesh, physiotherapist, uh, and, uh, or, uh, um, or whomever. As long as you check off the key um, components of things that you as a clinician need to do, I mean, there's certain things that need to be done. You need to be able to manage uh, uh, certain aspects of uh, inpatient care. You need to be able to do a good quality surgical incision and drainage. You need to be able to assess blood flow and intervene endo or open or medic best medical therapy um, as necessary. Uh, you need uh, to be able to keep someone in a euglycemic state whilst in hospital. I said whilst for you, Joe, because you think I'm the uh, 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 cast. It's your British I, affectation. I'm doing yeah. an affectation and I'm not, but I just, because uh, I enjoy it. This is what we do out here in Los Angeles, Joe, not there in Houston. Um, but uh, the, uh, uh, and, and so there are just these few things that, that can be done uh, and that one can check off the list. And once you've ticked those things off, you you really have, uh, you know, your must-haves and then nice-to-haves. And I will tell you, at the center of that is really what we, we call toe and flow. We've also added in our unit several other components, I'll say. And those uh, that, that uh, key in those have been physical therapy 
Um, so we call our unit Toe Flow and Go now. Um, and um, in addition to that, some of the great things we've added, um, I'll just say, and Joe can chime in too, because I, uh, I know we've discussed this pretty recently at DEF CON, but you know, we find that a lot of our patients, um, while we're treating them, um, are, are really clinically depressed. And, and I think we, um, you know, if we're surgically or medically minded, we may not be as attuned to all of that as we could be. And, you know, we try to get our uh, full, our colleagues in behavioral health and in, in psychology or in psychiatry involved, but, you know, they're so busy and unless someone is having a suicidal or homicidal ideation, it's probably too busy to get them involved um, initially. But what we have found is that getting our colleagues in occupational therapy um, involved, they are uniquely suited to be able to handle uh, uh, certain initial behavioral um, aspects and triage them as necessary. That has been wonderful in our clinic. In addition to that, nutritional services in the clinic, um, in our waiting area, um, actually talking to patients about you know uh, diet and eating, and and that has been an absolute uh, a, a value added and plus. Uh, in addition to all of our. Uh, you know, good quality or research that's going on. We have, you know, any number of studies that are going on in any given time. But that's kind of the, the some of the key compliments that we've had um, in our unit. I don't know if you want to add anything else, Joe. No, I think well, the problem gets to be the bigger your team gets, the harder it gets to coordinate. So on the day-to-day -day activities, I think um, flow and and flow can include, so it doesn't, it doesn't exclude other vascular specialists at all. So there are some there are some vascular specialists who are vascular surgeons who are really devoted to the limb, and they're pretty expert both in open and endo. And there are others that that have a moderate interest in it, and they're pretty good at, at open, but not so good at endo. So that's, there's room for a cardiologist or interventional radiologist who's devoted to CLTI to be part of that group. But I think those that's been shown in the best trial where they've gotten multiple groups to work together. But anyway, so in addition to that, the only thing we've added at Baylor is we have an infectious disease doctor who's really interested in diabetic foot problems. And we've, we've, we've tried to, we meet once a month and try to look at what antibiotic the patient was sent home on, if they really took it for the whole time, monitor sensitivities, um, and look at whether we're using the antibiotics appropriately. I think that's been helpful. It's still imperfect. I think ideally you'd want to have education nurses in your clinic that can help. I mean, because th this is, so what we've done so far is set up basically trauma centers for the diabetic foot. But the diabetic foot is a manifestation of a chronic disease that needs long-term management. So David knows this data, but there was a Stefan Moorbach paper not too long ago that looked at recurrence of diabetic foot ulcers in a system that has pretty good care for these patients. And it was 97% at 10 years. So the, these patients need long-term management. And I think part of that is controlling their sugar, monitoring their other problems with diabetes. And if you treat it like a trauma problem, you're not doing all that. So the problem gets to be, how do you put that together in your own center? But as far as managing the wounds and, and the high-risk patients, the, the two key components are toe and flow. And the other stuff you would like to have, I think Professor Bolton was the first one to call it metabolic. No, you need someone, either a diabetologist or an internist to manage the diabetes aspect of things. And I think it does help if you could have dietary advice and lifestyle advice if you incorporate that in your clinic. And, and I and I didn't mention, by the way. I mean, it's almost like it's a it's it's a a foregone conclusion 
that we have good quality shoe specialists in the unit um, or very close by that can help. Um, we have the great luxury at our place of being able to send our patients to one of our clinics at um, at uh, the our National Rehabilitation Center at Rancho Los Amigos, which is kind of the world-renowned uh, facility for rehab. And we have um, just a great clinic there and a great center there for getting people into the right shoes and insoles and really working with them. But Joe hit on a key point, Ramesh, that we haven't talked about it, and that was you know, that once folks are healed, uh, they're not healed, you know, at one year about with the best available data, you know, the about 40% are going to have recurrence. It's about two thirds at three years, um, and three quarters at five. And you heard, uh, talking about Stefan's, uh, Stefan Morbach's work in Soest, Germany, showing almost a hundred percent, um, recur at 10 years. So, um, we coined the term many years ago, uh, the remission. And uh, just like because we've often compared this problem to cancer, I'm sure you've heard that as comparing the, the cost, the morbidity, the mortality to cancer. And you can it's not a fair comparison, but it's it, it's an apt one because you can you can make an academic argument about it. Because every and, and the other thing is everyone cares about cancer and not so many people care about feet, you know, I mean, or not thinking about it because it's this kind of silent, sinister syndrome. And also the amount of resources that are thrown into it yeah. with uh, as much uh, as much remissions and, and recurrences. Yeah, yeah that, that's remission exactly right. And so the goal then, when you think about remission, when you're talking to the patient, it, it everything changes, right? Because... When you talk to them and you can say, uh, Ms. Garcia, thank God you're healed, but you know what? You're not healed. This is just like cancer. And you use the C word there and you see Ms. Garcia kind of stiffen up and you see Ms. Garcia's husband um, or grandson in the corner you know, look up from their phone um, and you say, this is going to shorten your life. This is going to shorten your life. And by the way, it may kill you. But here's what we're going to do. Um, you are not healed. You are. The chance is very high that in our long life together, that you're going to get another wound. It's almost certain. But what we're going to try to do as we work together um, is we're going to try to make that wound as unusual, as uncommon, and as uncomplicated as possible. You are in remission, just like with cancer. And then you see her kind of relaxing a little bit more, but kind of looking at you a little funny. All my patients look at me a little funny. Joe can confirm, uh, but uh, then uh, the the uh, uh, we say we're going to get you in the right shoes and insoles. We're going to get you into the right exercise program with our physio phys physical therapy. Getting out into remission, we're going to be counting your steps, and then you start to see them kind of saying, "Okay, there's something I can do now." And and this is it becomes part of their life. And so instead of being eleventh on their ten most important things to do, checking it off the list, ticking it off the list, maybe it's like ninth. Or something, right? It's at least it's on there. It's on that list, so they understand this. And that idea of remission fundamentally changes everything because then you start talking about ulcer-free days, hospital-free days, and activity-rich days. And then on the vascular side, it's the same thing. You know, we always tell I tell every single one of our our trainees, uh, no matter what their specialty, I say, man, nothing ruins a good surgery like follow-up, right? And everything's going to go down. It doesn't matter what your specialty in surgery 
and no matter how much how how well you think of yourself, follow up, you know, either the patient's going to go down or the, the the repair will. And that is true in uh, in in vascular surgery as well. We can't confer immortality upon these patients. Uh, but what we see in vascular surgery is that there are now, you know, there are now more um, uh, revisional uh, vascular procedures in, in many parts of the world than there are vascular procedures. And that means, and that means that these patients are in vascular remission. They're in ischemic remission, whatever you want to call it. So the, these two ideas of remission for, a, for these chronic conditions flow, if you will, really well together. And our goal, just as you heard from Joe, he equated it to, to, to trauma, which is great. Our goal, though, is to reduce the incidence of these uh, and the severity of these acute on chronic complications. That's the big idea. Yeah. When I first heard the cancer analogy, I didn't like it at first, but it, it really, it's apt for a couple of reasons. Number one, the mortality for diabetic foot ulcers, especially with concomitant PAD, approaches most cancers except for lung and pancreas. But when you first give the patient that message, it comes across as negative. But I think the way you turn it into a positive, which it is, is that unlike some cancers where the, it's out of the patient's hands, really, there's not a lot they can do except wait to see if it comes back and monitor it. There are lots of things we can do with these diabetic foot patients to try to lengthen the length of their remission. I think if you can sell that to the patient as a positive thing and get them actively involved in their care, that's one of the problems we found out with the research study we did with PCORI and our indigent patients from Harris Health is a lot of them had no idea that there was any link between diabetic diabetes and foot ulcers, and they didn't understand the link between foot ulcer and amputation. So educating patients that, A, this doesn't have to happen, and B, it did happen, but it doesn't have to happen again, or at least we can we can try to push that down the road as far as possible. And the Japanese have really been the ones that have a champion this um, wound-free period, which I think is a really nice endpoint to look at. Because if you just look at limb salvage, you can have multiple endo procedures and end up with a salvaged limb for some of the high-stage patients, but many of them still have wounds to deal with. So from a patient perspective, they really want their wound to heal because it means that they can have a little more freedom. They don't have to come back to clinic as much. But anyway, I think that conversation, although it starts out negatively and kind of um, uh, almost predeterminism, if you will, but it, you can turn it into a positive thing and say, well, we have these things we can now do that may may increase your time being free of this problem. It's still going to be in the background, but it may not have to come back in five years. Maybe we can make it come back in 10 years. I think that's that's a huge, huge thing to do, is partnership with the patient. The big idea is that you're working together and that's and you're doing something, you're you're not backpedaling. You're this is so important. And again, the discussion with not only your patient, but with, to teach trainees this is 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 having like expectations set and and maybe true when you're consenting someone for an urgent surgery um, or a not urgent surgery but it's especially true when you're working with someone for the whole life and and when they see that you're going to go to the mat for them and when they see that you're doing stuff with them and not to them you know this doesn't this seems like a almost like a like a like it's just words, but I, I assure you, it's not. It, it really it, it it matters, and and they and they see that it doesn't matter your your specialty or uh, generality. It's it's that's the it's just the, the absolute 
Truth. One of the things I find is that when we are working as a diabetic foot uh, team, uh, patients come to the hospital and we look at their problems. Um, but when they go out in the community, how do they maintain uh, whatever advice we have given in terms of compliance and in terms of, you know, not just their diabetic medication, but also their footwear and also exercise? Um, uh, how do we ensure that? And that is always a problem. Do you find that as well? Hey, Joe, you want to talk about this? And I'll talk, we just had a paper, uh, we, excuse me, we just had an NIH uh, um, study, um, a big one uh, um, accepted uh, today, but maybe Joe wants to first touch on this and then I'll touch on it. No, we have, well, we have a different healthcare system than most of the world. So we have problems with get, getting continuity of care once the patient's discharged. <clears throat> so sometimes they come in and they're out of network or they live too far away to make follow-up um, easy. And we've actually, COVID helped here a little bit because the regulations on telephone visits and video health visits were relaxed somewhat. And we found a lot of, a lot of patients really appreciated to be able to ask questions and have a follow-up visit and even stick their foot up in front of their daughter's camera so you could take a look at it. And for a lot of patients, we call, that a, it, we call it, that a foot selfie. Foot selfie, but it gave them reassurance and it also helped us sort out like who really needed to come in. And then once our system got better at protecting patients and protecting ourselves, patients got more comfortable coming in. But I think for for places that serve um, large geographic areas, it's um, it's a struggle sometimes to get patients back. So we've we've tried to do that. We have a big healthcare system that's now part. It started out as Catholic Health CHI. Now it's Common Spirit, and there's multiple hospitals in the region. But we've we've still not successfully um, built mini toe and flow units or, you know, if you use the trauma analogy, you have level one, two, and three trauma centers. Ideally, you would have the same kind of thing for, for limb salvage centers where basic care was available everywhere. And then it would get stepped up depending on their Wi-Fi classification and what expertise was available at each site. Um, that would be the ideal thing. And I think in some instances, that's easier to do like the NHS has started to make some big steps work, and it's actually been driven by a couple of podiatrists over there, but to try to to get access to care quickly for patients that are high risk. Right. Um, but on the adherence thing, Ramesh, I'll, I'll just briefly touch on this. Um, you know, this is, it's really difficult. I, and, you know, we can only begin to understand what our patients are going through. And imagine if, you know, I mean, most of our patients don't have uh, what one of my mentors uh, used to call uh, the gift of pain, you know, and so they're not, they may look like us and even dress like us, but they are probably not going to behave like us because they don't have that feedback. It's, it's very, it's just, it's profound. And, uh, you know, e even if they still have all of their executive function intact, even if there are, even if they're not clinically depressed, they just don't have that nociceptive loop that we take for granted as human beings, and it that changes you. And uh, you know, Spinoza used to talk about you know if you can touch it, you have to almost touch something to be able to sort of comprehend it and realize it, you know, understand it uh, and internalize it. It's the same thing. Yeah, you have to be able to. Uh, you know, uh, interact with the earth to be able to move through the world. I mean, that, that you lose that, uh, you lose that balance. So that there's that. And that, and 
Um, but how do we um, give patients sensation back uh, when they don't have it? Well, we have to do substitutions. And for years, we've worked on various kinds of sensory substitution devices. We don't have time to talk about that. Uh, maybe next time, Ramesh. But what we can talk about, though, is ways are ways that we can ping the patient a little bit now using some very inexpensive gadgetry to um, get them maybe to know if they're kind of uh, to, to get them to do what they know they should already be doing. And we, we know they should already be doing. And uh, we have a study starting um, this next year uh, funded by our National Institutes of Health um, where uh, we are going to be randomizing people into a standard uh, boot, um, which is removable, um, another boot, which is irremovable. We know that when we make things irremovable, that more people heal, but that's kind of punitive. And then the third group, the third arm is going to be a patient group that has uh, an a removable device, but with a, a smart watch or just a system that's going to alert the patient when they're, and, the, and, the, and the clinician when they're not wearing their device and kind of give them a little bit of a nudge. And we're going to see how much that nudge works and maybe figure out better ways to nudge them without just driving them crazy. And again, doing something with them and not to them. We'll see. I think we're going to learn a lot from that study. And it's an ex just a super exciting time. And you are also looking at artificial intelligence and biosensors ah. to aid you in uh, diabetic foot care? Well, that's a great question. So um, there are a bunch of different AI overlays for a bunch of different things. Um, uh, Joe um, works with one of my former postdocs uh, uh, and who's now a full professor with Joe, and that's Bijan Najafi, who's been doing a great deal in activity monitoring. And we just collectively published a paper, I think, today in JAMA Network Open uh, 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 looking at certain wearables with AI overlays for frailty. But um, we're doing this for thermometry, for, for skin temperatures. We're also doing it. Um, I had mentioned with Joe the idea of this foot selfie where we have patients just take a simple picture of their foot. And one of our uh, medical students, uh, third-year medical student with us here at USC, Mark Swerdlow, he's a great young man. And um, he... Uh, uh, 3D prints a little box that people can put their foot on and take the exact same kind of picture every, you know, each time. And, and patients take their picture and it gets uploaded to a, uh, for free, you know, to a little server. Uh, and we review it every Monday at uh, 7 a.m. We have kind of foot selfie rounds and we can get through like 50 or 75 quick photos super fast. And man, Ramesh, not a week goes by, not a week goes by without exaggeration where we don't stop a hospitalization or get to someone quickly. It's so simple and it, it's great. It's almost like chart rounds in a weird way, but it's just virtual and that works great, especially peri-COVID. But people are taking this one step further, including us. We're trying to get um, a, a, a kind of a visual AI-based uh, overlay to where we can have uh, a, a kind of smart vision, be able to identify patterns uh, that uh, without human um, uh, interaction or with or maybe with a hybrid human uh, machine interaction and some of the people that are really leading the way um, are our friends in Manchester uh, it's being led by Moi Hoon Yap there and uh, Moi Hoon in, in, at Manchester Metropolitan is working with Oracle uh, on that as well it's it's uh, called the Diabetic Foot Grand Challenge 
And that's one of several groups that are doing it, but she's, she's doing great. I'm really excited to hear uh, what uh, she's doing along with the group at uh, Mars uh, at the Manchester uh, Amputation Reduction Strategy at, uh, in, in Manchester. And David, is this technology extendable to uh, dressings and topical applications as well on the ulcers? Yeah, great question. Yeah, the, the yes. The, the to, to short answer is yes. The, the long answer is it's complicated, like everything. Yeah, but the the concept of of pattern recognition is this is what we do as humans, and uh, we're good at pattern recognition. Um, and uh, you know we've uh, worked to develop machines that work on pattern recognition as well, and and uh, of course one has to be careful. Uh, there's so many dangers with AI. Uh, with you know, depending on you know, you can get garbage in, garbage out, depending on what you put in on the input side. But uh, if you're able to teach uh, these networks ap appropriately, then I think you can really start on uh, start on a pathway that's poised for success. And that could be based on various kinds of analytes you can measure in addressing, or but it could also be, and definitely could be, based on patterns of activity. Um, and that's super exciting. And thermometry. Oh, that's great. Um, coming to Joe, um, Joe, what do you think about uh, uh, telling our uh, listeners about your Wi-Fi classification and how it differs from class and um, how we can improve the utility of Wi-Fi classification and daily practice? I've, I've seen a lot of and read a lot of... Uh, literature on Wi-Fi, and uh, we try to, uh, you know, uh, apply it in our practice, but sometimes we find it's too cumbersome, and a lot of people uh, have uh, alluded to that fact to me. So how can you make it more user-friendly and uh, improve its applicability? Well, a couple things about that. So just as far as the development of Wi-Fi, I mean, when you're sitting in the trenches working on patients, you tend to rely on how you were trained. And, and when I started out, I trained with Dr. John Porter, late Dr. John Porter in Oregon. And most of those patients I saw with him were pure ischemia problems. And basically the problem was how do you get more blood to an extremely thirsty foot? And I applied those principles for many years. And it took me a while to figure out that the demographics had changed. So we no longer had all the patients with diabetic foot ulcers didn't necessarily have recognized ischemia. And in some of them, it wasn't as severe as what we used to call critical limb ischemia. Um, so it got hard to sort out who needed what. And so I was trying to think of a different way to think about it. And David and I started working together. And if you, if you, if you back up from the seeming complexity of it for a minute, on every single patient, if you're going to look at the limb, you want to stage it like you would a cancer, right? So you, the idea of Wi-Fi would it would be like TNM for cancer. So it it doesn't stage the patient as far as their comorbidities, and it doesn't really tell you much about specific anatomy, but it does tell you about the risk of the limb or cancer and how is it spread and how advanced is it. So if you think about it, on any given patient, there's I like to think in in Venn diagrams, but you have a wound, you have ischemia, and you have foot infection. And some combinations are maybe more dangerous than others. And most vascular surgeons would agree that patients with diabetes probably need more blood flow to heal than non-diabetics. 
and would also agree that when you have some PAD that's complicated by infection, that may drive um, the need for revascularization where the patient might not meet a certain uh, hemodynamic definition of CLI. So if you think about it, you sort of have to assess the wound, the infection, uh, and the ischemia in every patient. So the, the new app just came out. Um, it's been, a, uh, been improved from SBS. So you can plug all the descriptors in and actually get a Wi-Fi classification. So it classifies patients into four risks. So what does that do? It, first of all, in the class one patients almost always will heal with um, simple offloading and debridement if they need it, if they have a low-grade infection and don't need revascularization, and they're low risk for amputation at one year. And that's been confirmed in multiple studies. There was a, uh, a, a meta-analysis done from a group from the Netherlands published in the European Journal last year of almost 3,000 limbs, and the, there was 0% limb loss at one year in the clinical stage one patients, but it was 38% in the clinical stage four and then the twos and threes separate some, but not quite as dramatically as one and four. But if you look at wound healing time, actually, that's been looked at by multiple groups that separates them out. So to me, there's no question it's useful and also that it helps drive therapy. So if you imagine if the problems that at the given time is mostly infection with less ischemia and, and not even that much of a wound, then the priority is on addressing the infection and then reassessing the patient. So the other thing about Wi-Fi is that you um, reassess the patient after a course of therapy, just like you would restage a cancer patient who had TNM at, at time zero and then underwent a course of chemotherapy. So that's meant to stage the limb. And then the global guidelines came out last year, which um, I think both of you were involved with, but it was 58 authors from multiple countries. And it just tried to look at the perspective. So the idea behind calling it CLTI is it's a spectrum. It's not a single cutoff for ischemia and and lesser grades of ischemia that aren't quite severe may need to be corrected in order to heal a wound or keep it healed. So that's and so the concepts that came out were that were to classify with Wi-Fi. And then the concept, next concept that came out from that was called plan. So patient, so there's a a it needs to be improved to include other things like nutritional status and probably um ambulatory status and frailty status, but the the patient part was based on a huge BQI study that Jessica Simmons did that looked at perioperative two-year and five-year mortality. Um, and we have pretty good data now to predict that in patients. And clearly, patients with um, high perioperative mortality and, and limited two- to five-year mortality probably should generally be treated with endo because it's less invasive and durability is less of an issue. So that's the P part of PLAN, PL. And A... Uh, actually, I'm sorry, P is plays as the patient comorbidity index or mortality index. L is limb, which is Wi-Fi. A is the anatomy, and that's where glass comes in. So glass was a new classification system to try to improve uh, task, which has pretty much been abandoned. So glass actually um, looks at the 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 target artery path that you would choose to get blood to the foot. So it's meant to be more applicable to endo. Um, but it looks at limb-based patency and multiple stages of FEMPOP and tibial and foot disease. And actually, there's some studies now. There's one from San Francisco. There's a couple from Japan. There's one from Europe that show that the glass scores correlate with limb-based patency and with limb salvage. So if you put glass together with Wi-Fi, 
it, it gives you a more evidence-based, logical way to look at these patients and not do the same thing for everybody. I mean, to say that endo is the choice of therapy for all patients with chronic limb-threatening ischemia is not true, nor is bypass. Um, so it gives you a logical way to go through those patients. So I think and there's also an app for that. So that, that app just came out. So you can actually, and that's where you mentioned AI. AI could be used, and there's at least one group doing this, to analyze angiograms and try to come up with the glass classification. So once we can validate it, so what if you had a low-risk patient who had a good vein, who had a clinical stage three or four Wi-Fi limb, who had a life expectancy that was reasonable, um, and you had data that showed that bypass was better for that patient based on their glass score, then you might choose bypass rather than just doing what you know how to do. So that, that's still in the works. We don't know yet, but it, it's broadened the way we think about these patients. And it takes away the argument of endo versus open. It tries to make it more like a menu that you choose the best option for that patient. Exactly. And Joe and Joe Vermesh was also saying, you know, well, it's when, he, when he's tried to use it in his clinic, it's been complicated. And, and let me just let me just try to make it as uncomplicated as possible. Sure, managing these patients is complicated. I don't need to tell you that. I think I'm preaching to the converted there. But you uh, disentangling all this stuff, you have that Venn diagram that Joe talked about that we had put together many years ago, uh, back I think in 2012, 2013, when we were first talking about this before uh, it was actually published as Wi-Fi, um, but. You really just have to ha ask what's dominant, and so you you uh, so you look at the wound. Is it none, mild, moderate, severe, zero through four? Super easy to do. Uh, that, so that when you're looking at tissue loss, you you look at um, ischemia, none, mild, moderate, severe, based on hemodynamics using the SVS classification that's been validated. Super uh, kind of basic to do as well. And then finally, foot infection, not mild, moderate, and severe, um, based on the IDSA classification. You put all those together, you have Wi-Fi, and it's easy, zero, one, two, three. But when you're assessing a patient, you have to ask, what is the dominant condition? Is this an, is this a, um, an in infection dominant condition? Um, in which case, generally speaking, the infection takes primacy or primacy, Joe, over, uh, as you say in Houston, uh, over- Or we just say comes first. <laughs> Touche. Touche. Uh, but uh, the, the, but uh, the takes primacy over uh, the, uh, the infection will take primacy uh, uh, over everything. When that's sorted out, or, or if it's an ischemia-dominant condition. Uh, yeah, that, that's a free, not to interrupt you, but that's a frequent mistake is to delay draining drainable infection because you haven't got the Dopplers back or anything. And you right. can do a bedside exam. And if you hear phasic Doppler flow between the base of the toes, the foot's probably going to heal, number one. But number two, you can certainly drain infection. And then they, they, that's one of the advantages of endo. So if you promptly address the infection, yes, you have less concerns about your revascularization becoming infected if you can do it endovascularly. So then the, if the patient yeah. comes in septoid, you know, maybe they have a white count of 18 and some pus in the foot and a cellulitis that's four centimeters beyond the wound, and you do a reamputation and drain some plantar pus. And two days later, the white count's down and the foot is clean. You can put that patient in the cath lab and revascularize them there and get really good outcomes. The Clarici's group does that. Um, Clarici and used to work with doc, the late Dr. Falia in Milan. Um, and now they, they've that, been big proponents of that yeah, idea that you, you really, yeah, but you've really got to address infection. I don't know how many places I've been where you'll get a consult late in the week of some poor patient that's been sitting there for three days waiting for their Doppler tests. 
and they have a foot full of pus. And and so yeah. that's that's where the Venn diagram, if it's a dominant infection condition and it's drainable, that always goes first, regardless yeah. of the vascular status. And so yeah. then if they do have significant, if they have grade two or three ischemia, you can't sit on that patient for a long time. They As soon as you've got things damage controlled and cleaned up, you need to go ahead. So that that's where I think thinking in those terms helps a lot. Right. And, and then if you have you, a giant wound without right. much ischemia, then you can figure out like if it's going to need a flap, I'm going to probably okay. have to get an arteriogram because they're going to need to know their anatomy. Yeah, but yeah, then it's a, just a tissue loss dominant condition. It's a wound dominant condition, and that yeah, and is it, an outpatient that that can be managed outpatient, and that's more of just that's just the landscape. Yeah. Um, so, and then so, the pure the pure ischemia then is someone with classic ischemic rest pain and dependent rubor, and they can't sleep at night for a month, and they've taken pain medicines and their toes are kind of purplish, but they don't have a wound yet. That's a pure blood flow problem. So that patient just needs their flow addressed. So if you just think about that, those three scenarios, then a patient that stepped on a, a tack or a, a piece of glass or a needle and has a minimal wound on their foot and has gas in their forefoot, that's a bad, that's a bad infection problem, right? So that comes Correct. first. So if you, if you take the three extremes and then imagine as you bring those three circles together, how they overlap, then it gets pretty complicated when they have moderate infection is it drainable or not kind of a medium ulcer you can might be able to get a transmit and their abi is 0.6 so that's where having a team really helps when you try to figure out that's like, it. What stage, that's, how, that's, how are we going to stage these things that's the secret because then you're going about this systematically together and you're maybe you're texting each other or maybe you're around the patient at the exact same time or often you're even you know in the same case sharing uh, uh anesthesia uh I don't mean like actually sharing anesthesia. I mean, you know what I mean. Uh, that would, but, that but, would be problematic. That would be. That would be. Uh, they, they, but, but, but there you have it. I mean, and so this is what's, this is what makes it terrific because, uh, you know, time is tissue and, and that saves time. And, and not just time is tissue, but timing of everything between. Yes between tissue loss and ischemia and infection yes. and when to do what uh, and which one to choose. And you rightly highlighted that your Venn diagram really aids you into doing that. There you are. So um, it's been a pleasure to talk to both of you. And to round up, I want to know what awaits us in future regarding diabetic foot. Well, I think this is perfect because we'll have two slightly different but complementary views. So I am more of a systems person and a Venn diagram person, and, and David is more of a gadget and technology person, but I think both will be necessary. So to me, the biggest thing we can do is to try to, to develop algorithms of care and actually coordinate care based on, on, um, on evidence base and using systems that classify the limb, that classify the patient and classify the anatomy to get appropriate care. And then and then get that to work throughout hospital systems and regions. And then ultimately, we of course, we'll have um, technology will help us. And I'll let David get into that. But there's ways of monitoring conditions now. Temperatures, one, pH of wounds, different constituents of wounds that could be done with part of a dressing, a smart dressing, those kind of things. But I think those will only work if we work out a system first where we have the patient managed correctly. And then ultimately, I mean, the biggest thing is actually prevention, right? Do we, how do we get people back to a lifestyle that doesn't um, cause a global epidemic? I mean, this epidemic of diabetes kind of snuck up on us. It's been going on for 20 or 30 years, as in contrast to the current viral pandemic, which came seemingly out of nowhere and 
taken over the whole world in less than nine months, but it's still an epidemic of sorts. And so we need to respond to that. I think ultimately it could be a little bit like aneurysm disease. Since smoking has gone down, we have fewer aneurysms than we used to. I think if we can get people back to healthier lifestyles and better diets that we can reduce diabetes again and have fewer diabetic foot ulcers. But anyway, for me, the answer is systems creation and coordinating care uh, at multiple levels and integrating healthcare systems. And then D David could probably address the technology part, which I think will definitely be important, but it's not the first thing we need to have. And you're right. Uh, but let's, but to, to kind of riff off of that, I think just two quick things. The first thing is kind of measuring what we manage, just like you heard. We, we and, and I think uh, we've been preaching the concept of diagnostics and theranostics, kind of companion diagnostics and theranostics to go with tissue repair and wound healing and vascular disease, by the way, forever. And I think now these next several years are going to see really an awakening for things like if this, then this kind of therapies where we can measure something in a wound uh, and that will dictate what we use uh, in terms of companion diagnostics. There are too many of these now to mention that are quite exciting. Um, so that's first, and it's kind of the, the diagnostics and theranostics. The other thing that I think is just super exciting, and, and we've been doing it for a long time, we've talked about it a little bit now, but that has really been accentuated by the pandemic, is remote patient monitoring, or well, we call it RPM. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, like clockwork last year in, in uh, even before the pandemic, uh, I think it was in uh, April, um, it was a really, I don't use uh, U.S. healthcare and progressive very often, but I'm going to say th this was extremely progressive. Um, this last year, um, the, the U.S. had certain billing codes that allowed for payment for remote patient monitoring. Uh, that would pay clinicians and hospital units, hospital districts for monitoring patients at home, which has never happened. I mean, it's awesome. It's making prevention pay. So many of the things that we have been working on for the longest time, things like thermography, things like, you know, smart insoles and, you know, textiles and surfaces, et cetera, et cetera, uh, now can allow us to be able to dose activity uh, like we dose a drug maybe at home and and, and have an early warning system at home, like you have a home-based security system. And we could be the fire department and that could be the fire alarm. And, and uh, then we could coax people maybe into being a little bit more, uh, uh, maybe a little bit better health economy. Thank you so much. There you have it. To summarize the uh, Shaolin masters of diabetic foot care. Can I call you both that? I, I, there's a Shaolin temple right across the street from me here on, on Ventura Boulevard, uh, right next to a pet, a fancy pet store uh, and a, uh, uh, I think a marijuana dispensary called Buds and Roses. So yes, you may. So um, to summarize both of you, I think the future belongs to algorithmic healthcare systems uh, in the recognition, prevention, and management of uh, diabetic foot uh, problems, as well as uh, measuring what and how we manage these systems and uh, also patient remote healthcare and monitoring. So with these words, um, I want to thank Joe and David for this exhilarating talk. 
um, with me on this podcast. And uh, thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Ramesh. It's been nice to talk to you from a distance. And David, of course, yeah. from less of a distance. <laughs> well, listen, Ramesh, it's really, really <laughs> such a pleasure. Really. You're welcome. Thank you very much. You you guys have a nice day. Take care, you guys. Be well. This podcast was brought to you by Radcliffe Vascular and is sponsored by Medtronic. To view the series, head to radcliffevascular.com forward slash vascular podcast. You can also find us on all well-known podcast platforms and follow us on Twitter at Radcliffe Vascu. Thanks for listening.